Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Our text this morning will be verses 7 through 20. As we look how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper using the Jewish Passover on the night of his betrayal the evening before his death. Pick up there with me in Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray together. Lord, you are so good and so faithful. Lord, we come before you as hungry children this morning. May we be a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For only in you will we be satisfied. May we be a people, Lord, seeking holiness. May we be like Christ so that you are magnified in everything. And Lord, may we be instructed and reminded even through this text how we have the joy of being reconciled to you. And that reconciliation, Lord, is based in Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins rising from the grave, being established, Lord, as a King of kings and the Lord of lords, whose righteousness is ours by faith. Guide us now in understanding, Lord. Lead us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You know, when we look back in the Old Testament, when we look at what Israel was under the Old Covenant, we see so many different observances. They have the Feast of This and the Day of the Atonement and the, the, the booths and, and unleavened bread and Passover and so many different things that were part of their calendar every single year. You know, as Christians, the probably the closest thing that we have to an annual observance that's tied directly to, to, to an aspect of our faith is Easter, Resurrection Sunday that we celebrate every spring. 
You know, on that Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate what is true every day of the year, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, that he has risen from the grave on the third day, that early on that Sunday morning, the stone was rolled away, and that because he has defeated death, he himself is the one and only way to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God, and to have eternal life. And that's why on that special Sunday every spring, we gather for worship, sometimes at sunrise services. We sing songs that celebrate life and resurrection. We give gifts that represent new life in Christ. And we have special meals together as families and as God's people. We do these things as expressions of thankfulness for his grace and to rejoice in the new life that we have in Christ. Well, again, ancient Israel had so many observances along that same line. And the reason that God did this for them as his people is so that they would not forget their history. So that they would not forget all the times that he had miraculously delivered them and attended to their needs. After Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Passover was the next biggest event of the Jewish year. It was commanded in Exodus 12, verses 1 through 14, and it was celebrated at the full moon of the first month of the vernal new year. On the 10th of Nisan, each family was to choose a year-old lamb. And at twilight on that evening, they were to kill this unblemished lamb without breaking any of its bones and spread its blood on the lintels of their doorpost of their house. The meat was then roasted over the fire and eaten the same night with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And the unleavened bread, again, symbolized the haste with which the people of Israel would depart Egypt. And the bitter herbs represented the bitterness of their enslavement. While they ate, where they were to be dressed and ready for departure, and whatever was not eaten by morning had to be burned in the fire. That was Passover. And then the day after Passover was the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, which continued for seven more days. When we look at the Gospels, John's Gospel marks the occurrence of all three Passover observances during the ministry of Christ. But all of the Gospels focus on the time of this third observance because of how Christ would fulfill and thus redefine Passover in light of his work of redemption. So in our text this morning, Jesus is preparing to observe Passover for the last time with his disciples. This is the day before his murder. And as we saw in our text last time, everything necessary for his betrayal and rest, arrest had been already set in motion. But as we come this morning, we see him establish an ordinance for the church that is to be regularly observed so that we remember, so that we regularly have an occasion to reflect upon what he has done to reconcile us to a holy God to bring us into relationship with the one who made us, to give us the promise of eternity in our hearts. That is what we will see this morning. So we're going to look at this text in just two parts. Let's talk first about the preparation for the Passover. Here at verse 7, it says, The day came of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And this is really speaking to the timing of the Passover. And believe it or not, this is a subject of great debate in the scholarly community. Passover, again, was considered to be the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. It was observed on the 14th of Nisan, according to the cycles of the moon. But the subject of the debate is how Jesus could both observe the Passover on one evening, Thursday evening, 
and yet still be killed at the time when Passover lambs were slaughtered on Friday afternoon. Because that would make Passover a two-day celebration, right? You see, the ritual requirements of the observance of this time was that Passover had to be observed in the city of Jerusalem, and the lamb had to be taken to the temple to be slain by the priests at twilight, which was defined at being between 3 and 5 p.m. before evening. The priests would kill the lambs and pour their blood at the base of the altar as an offering, and then the people would take their lamb back to their home to roast it over a fire and eat it. And again, these events were to take place on the 14th of the month. So how did Jesus observe Passover on Thursday and yet also be slain at the time Passover lambs were slain on Friday? Some liberal scholars contend that this whole question proves that the Bible's in error because of the discrepancy between John's account and the other three Gospels. Other scholars contend that what Jesus observed with his disciples was not truly a full Passover observance, but just a ceremonial meal in preparation for Passover the next day. But that's wrong according to our text, which specifically labels this a Passover observance. Other groups says that, say that Jesus moved his observance just up a day so, and, and that the religious leaders moved theirs back a day. But again, both Jesus and the religious leaders, they kept the whole law. They would not arbitrarily move observances to suit themselves. Still other scholars believe that everyone observed the Passover on Thursday and that Friday was merely the first day of unleavened bread which followed Passover. However, if you remember... The religious leaders would not go into the court of Pilate on Friday morning after they'd had Jesus arrested because they did not want to become ceremonially unclean and not able to eat the Passover that evening. So this verse, uh, John 18, 28, does not make sense if Passover had already been celebrated the day before. So the question is, how do we reconcile this? Well, we want to remember that Jews count the day as going from sunset to sunset. From Josephus and the Mishnah and other sources, we learn that many northern Jews and Galilean Jews would also count the day from sunrise to sunrise. And what we see is the Jewish authorities accounting for both. You see, in the time of Christ, Jerusalem would swell to almost 10 times its normal population during Passover. Jerusalem was normally a city of about 200,000 people. During Passover, it would contain 2 million people. The sheer number of people and the sheer number of sacrifices, the sheer number of lambs that had to be slaughtered within a two-hour window would be impossible. And so the religious leaders deliberately incorporated the Galilean perspective into the normal Jewish perspective and how they observed Passover. What this meant was that the priest would slaughter lambs on Thursday afternoon between 3 and 5 p.m. for those who celebrated Passover at sundown on Thursday evening. And then they also slaughtered lambs on Friday afternoon for those who observed it on Friday. And therefore, Jesus could rightly celebrate Passover with his disciples Thursday evening and be crucified as God's Passover lamb on Friday afternoon. Now, going back to our text here in verse 8, Jesus asked Peter and John to go and prepare the Passover meal for the group. In verse 9, these men said, well, where, Jesus? Where do you want us to do this? Obviously, Jesus had made some private prior arrangement 
with a man in the city to use his upper room. He had already been in Jerusalem several days, so he could have easily made that contact. If we pick up with verse 10, we see, Jesus said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus, in an exercise of his omniscience, he knew that when his disciples entered at the appropriate time, they would see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, why is that so significant? Well, just because honestly, at this time, it was very uncommon to see men carrying water. That was typically something that women did. And so to see a man carrying water would be unusual. When they saw this man, they they were to follow him to the proper house. The question we ask at this point is, well, why didn't Jesus just say, go to the house of so-and-so, he's ready to receive you, I've, I've arranged for a room, just go to this house and you'll be able to set up there. Well, remember, Jesus already knew what was in Judas's heart. And if Judas heard Jesus say whose house they were going to, Judas might have tried to have, tried to have Jesus arrested there on the night of Passover. It was important for Jesus to have an uninterrupted supper with his men. And so this is how he kept this a secret from Judas. The disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They found the man carrying the water. They located the proper house. They delivered the teacher's message. And they went and prepared the meal in the upper room. In order to prepare the meal, they had to purchase or prepare about six different food items for the Passover. But the main thing they had to do was secure the lamb take it to the priest, have it slaughtered in the temple, and bring it back and begin to roast it over a fire. Now at this point, as we finish this point on the preparation for the Lord's Supper, I really want to draw our attention away from the physical and material preparation of the Passover meal, and I want to focus us for a moment on God's sovereign and spiritual preparation for the Passover. As Jesus instructs his men here how to find the house that they are going to have the Passover in, he exercises an omniscience to tell them exactly how it's going to happen. And what this reminds us of, brothers and sisters, is that every single circumstance that is unfolding here, every single circumstance leading to the crucifixion of Jesus was planned and directed by God. Every single detail was going to unfold in exactly the way that God had ordained it to unfold. What the Godhead had determined to accomplish in eternity past, in the covenant of redemption, was unfolding in real time, and Jesus was directing it all. Now, why is that so important for us? Because we want to understand that our Savior was was not merely the victim of some bad circumstances orchestrated by some bad people. What was unfolding as we walk through the Gospels had been ordained by God, planned by God, before the first words of creation were ever spoken. He is the Lamb of God slain from what? The foundation of the world. Jesus was going to show his disciples that he was the perfect Passover lamb. The only means of being spared from the curse of death 
and hell. And he was making sure everything took place exactly according to the timing of God. He would be slaughtered on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it would all take place exactly how it was predicted by the prophets. Exactly so it would be a fulfillment of Scripture. Exactly in a way where Jesus Christ is, was, would be the once and for all sacrifice for sins. Why is this good for us to know and remember, brothers and sisters? It's good for us to know and remember this because Jesus Christ not only directed all the events of his own life to perfectly and rightly accomplish God's purpose of redemption, Jesus Christ even now is perfectly active in his providence over every circumstance of our lives to accomplish his purpose of sanctification in us, to accomplish his work of redemption in us. If we truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we must understand that he is at work now through the things we are facing in our marriages, through the things we are facing in our parenting, through the trials and, and triumphs that we are facing in our work, through the challenges that we will face in our family interactions and, 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 and needs. Through every different dynamic of our lives, Jesus Christ right now is at work for his greatest glory and our greatest good. It was true during his own lifetime here on earth. It is true even now. And we rest in that reality as his children. There is no circumstance of your life that escapes either his control and direction or his notice. There is not an element of anything that you are going through or have endured, who have suffered or that you have received that has not been overseen by the very Son of God who has loved you, who has redeemed you for himself, who is working even now to present you before himself complete before the Father at the end of your life. Rest in that, brothers and sisters. Even in the trials that you are facing, facing Rest in that and know that Jesus was in control of every circumstance leading up to his own murder. He is certainly work at work in and for his glory in your life just the same. That goes to the institution of the supper. That is my second point this morning. Let's pick up with verse 14. As we move on in the text... It says, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. We know in biblical times that they ate at low tables. They were basically just low tables, just, just about a foot or two off the ground, and they reclined on cushions. And as they reclined at the table, Jesus communicated his heart to them in verse 15. Look at verse 15. He said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This final Passover of his ministry was something that Jesus had sincerely looked forward to sharing with them because he was about to show them how he was the fulfillment of everything this meal represented. He was about to reveal to them that something they did out of a sense of religious tradition was inherently, prophetically Christ-centered. And he would transform Passover into an ordinance for his church that we would have as a tangible means of worshiping him and drawing near to him and affirming our hope in him that we would have until the time of his return. 
Now, to fully appreciate how Jesus established the Lord's Supper in the midst of a Passover meal, I think it's very beneficial for us to take just a moment and walk through what are the steps of a traditional Passover meal. Sometimes it's referred to as a Passover Seder. Well, step number one, they would drink the first cup of wine, the cup of blessing or consecration that was accompanied by prayer. Step number two, the person presiding over the feast would wash their hands three times. In step number three, they would take out some bitter herbs, horseradish, lettuce, parsley, and they were put into salt water and dipped in salt water and eaten. This represented the hyssop, which was dipped in the blood of the lamb and smeared on the doorpost of the house. At step number four, they would have the first breaking of bread. Unleavened bread would be brought out. He would take the, the host would take the center one and break it into little pieces. And step number five, they would have the proclamation or the proclaiming. And it was the duty of the host or the father at this point to explain to everyone present the meaning of the Passover meal, how God delivered his people miraculously out of their slavery in Egypt. Then you had step number six, which was the singing of the halal. The halal consists of Psalm 113 through 118. And so they would sing together Psalms 113 and 114 as a praise unto God. Then at step number seven, they would have the second cup of wine, which is the cup of judgment. It was drunk according to, uh, corresponding to Exodus 6, 6, where God said he would deliver you from their bondage. His judgment was coming upon Egypt and he would deliver his people. Step number eight was when the meal itself formally began. So at this point, Everyone at step eight would wash their hands. At step nine, after saying a word of prayer, the small pieces of unleavened bread were distributed to everyone present who then ate them along with some of the bitter herbs. At step number 10, some of the bitter herbs were taken and placed between two pieces of unleavened bread and dipped in a fruit sauce called cheriseth. At step number 11, the lamb was then finally consumed. Everybody was able to eat the lamb. And again, if there was any leftover, it had to be burned in the fire. It could not be consumed at any later meal. At step number 12, they would then wash their hands. You can imagine after eating all that greasy lamb, they washed their hands again. And, and they, the remainder of the Passover bread was then brought out and eaten at step 12. And then at step 13, they had a long prayer of thanksgiving for the meal which even at this, to this day when Jews observe it, contains a petition for God to send Elijah as the herald of the Messiah. And then at step 14, following the prayer, the third cup of redemption was drunk. The third cup of wine is called the cup of redemption. That's important. We're going to come back to that later. And then at step 15, they would sing the final part of the halal. They would sing Psalms 115 through 118. And then at step 16, they would drink the final and fourth cup of wine called the cup of restoration. Now that's all to inform where we are here. Coming back to our our passage in Luke, we want to acknowledge there's a major interpretive hurdle here that we face straight away coming into the text. Because when we read, picking up at verse 14, it seems that Jesus gives them a cup of wine and then he gives them bread. And then he gives them a cup of wine again. And when we look at at the other gospels and when we look at Paul's instructions in the book of 1 Corinthians, we know the normal pattern for the Lord's Supper is not wine, bread, wine. It's bread and then wine. So interpreting scripture with scripture, how how do we understand what Luke gives us here? Well, we're to see that verses 16 through 18 are Jesus speaking during the Passover meal of how this was going to be his last observance until the full and final coming of the kingdom. 
Remember, there were four different places in the Passover meal when wine was consumed. The first cup of wine was the cup of blessing and thanksgiving. And so the best explanation for Luke's text here is that Luke is telling us that Jesus, as the leader of the meal, as he was distributing to his disciples the first cup at the beginning of the supper, he was speaking to them in verses 16 through 18 of how this would be his last time to observe Passover. Look at verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, some have misinterpreted these verses to mean that Jesus didn't even partake of the Lord's Supper at all, even as he instituted it. And that is absolutely wrong. He was saying that he would not partake of the supper again with them after this evening until the consummation of his kingdom. You see, Jesus was looking toward the day when his victory would be complete in the new heavens and the new earth. And on that day, the universal church, the church in its entirety, the redeemed from all times and all nations, that's when we will all meet together for the very first time. The bride will be complete, the wedding of the lamb will be consummated, and we will feast with Christ as he drinks the cup of his triumph. That is what Jesus was looking forward to in verses 16 through 18. Verses 19 through 20 are now where we have Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. In the last steps of the Passover, after the lamb had all been eaten, they would wash their hands and they would bring out whatever bread was left. It was this final offering of bread in verse 19 that Jesus took. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The disciples likely had difficulty understanding the significance of the statement, but it became very clear to them after the crucifixion and resurrection. And I want us to understand that contrary to Roman Catholic doctrine, the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, we do want to understand that Jesus was speaking here in symbolic terms. The bread did not literally become his body, but he himself, as he says in John 6, is the bread of life. The bread does represent his body. By his words, the unleavened bread which commemorated their deliverance from slavery in Egypt would now represent and commemorate his body which would be sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. His death would be the means by which men are freed from their slavery to sin. Eating that bread would represent the fact that we must make Christ's sacrifice our own. We must believe in him and thereby internalize the work of Christ in order to be saved. Now go on to verse 20 in your Bibles. Verse 20 says, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What Jesus did is he used here the third cup of wine near the end of the Passover observance. He used the cup of redemption. That third cup of wine in the Passover was known as the cup of redemption. And it is that cup that Jesus is redefining. This wine of redemption would now represent his blood sacrifice. He is the redeemer, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By his substitutionary death, his atoning sacrifice, he would establish the new covenant that was foretold all the way back in Jeremiah 31 and repeated in the book of Hebrews, right? 
God said there, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For my covenant they have broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Brothers and sisters, with this part of the ordinance, Jesus wants to remember, wants us to remember that we are brought into the new covenant by the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, by the perfect blood of His sacrifice. It is by His own blood that He would ratify the new covenant for His people, bringing us forgiveness of our sins. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs that have been offered over centuries by the Israelites, all of that blood was insufficient to cleanse men of their sins and to make them righteous before a holy God. But the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus cleanses us perfectly. The blood of Jesus is the means by which we are justified in the sight of God. What we could never accomplish on our own, Jesus gives to us as a matter of his own grace by his own sacrifice. And so when we, when we partake of the fruit of the vine, which is symbolic of the blood of Christ being poured out for us and sacrifice, drinking it represents the fact that, again, we make Christ's sacrifice our own. We believe in him and thereby internalize the work of Jesus Christ to be saved. You all know that here at Morning View, we, we observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday. We move it from morning to evening service. We're on a rotation today where we will observe communion tonight as his people. But every time we partake it, which is every week here, it is celebrating these very realities. That bread represents his body, which he willingly gave in our place. If anything, it was you and I who deserved that death. It was you and I who deserved to bear the wrath of God. But Jesus offered himself as our substitute in our place. And when we partake of that bread, we are remembering his body given for us. Likewise, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That is what the book of Leviticus teaches. It is our blood that deserved to be shed. It is we who deserve to pay for our transgressions. But by the blood of Christ, we are redeemed. His blood paid, bought us, paid for and bought us. So when we partake of that fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper... That is the new covenant. It represents that. His blood shed to bring us into right relationship with him. His blood shed to secure in us a new heart and a new identity as children of Christ. These are the realities that are to guide us as we come to the Lord's table. 
Whenever we approach him to partake of this observance, we are taking part in a holy ordinance that was instituted on this night of Passover and that has been cherished by every true church over the span of the last 20 centuries. Every time we observe communion, we are participating in a picture of redemption that is brought alive by the grace of Christ. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, the Spirit of Christ attends that every time we gather and partake. It's a ceremony of remembrance that sets vividly before us the cross of our Savior. And so what are we to have in mind when we come to the table of the Lord? We are to remember that we come to the table by divine invitation. Because we have been forgiven and reconciled to God through the redemptive work of Christ. And it is Jesus himself that invites us to come. The elements themselves represent the body and blood of Christ. The vessels of our atonement. And internalizing those elements represents our appropriation of Christ's righteousness through redemption and faith. These are not things that we have earned for ourselves. These are things freely given to us by the merciful grace of our Savior so that we may know him and be redeemed in him. And partaking of the Lord's Supper is a regular means of grace that provokes us to self-examination. The reason we're to do this regularly in the church is because it is a time to examine ourselves, to weigh our hearts, to see where we are in our relationship with Christ. Are we loving him? Are we honoring him? Are we walking in unrepentant sin? Do we truly love him as the first and greatest love of our lives? Are we striving to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? The supper is an occasion for us to ask and reflect upon those very questions. We're to examine ourselves, and we are to come in humble dependence upon him, having our faith deepened as we partake of these things. And the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters, finally, it also represents a, a tangible, a tangible expression of our hope. The Lord's Supper is a tangible expression of our hope. Every time, Paul says to the Corinthians, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death, what? Until he comes. It is a picture of the gospel that is forward-looking, that says we partake of this now. We remember what our Savior has given. We remember his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out. But even as we remember, we are looking forward to the day when we shall behold him, when we shall be with him, when our Lord shall return in splendor as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and all the hope that we have shall fully and finally be realized at his return. And that will be a glad day of feasting. That will be a glad day of rejoicing before him forevermore. That will be a glad day when at the marriage feast of the Lamb, we see Jesus get to take the cup of consummation when all has been made right by his return. Brothers and sisters, everything about the Lord's Supper draws us and drives us to the glory of Christ our King. 
You know, I, I thought about, you know, we, we, like I said, we have a rotation where we go back and forth. We just observed the Lord's Supper last Sunday morning. We'll observe it next Sunday morning. We'll observe it this evening. I actually thought about, about the middle of this week, should we move, you know, our, just because I'm preaching on the Lord's Supper, should, should we possibly just move it just this one time from the evening service to the morning service? And, and I thought about that for a while. I, I, I almost did it. But then I thought to myself, you know, there's value, too, in us meditating upon these things in preparation for tonight. Having time to, to really weigh and consider before we partake of it this evening or weigh and consider before we partake again next Sunday morning. For us to meditate upon and to dwell upon the beauty of our Savior. How He is a fulfillment of all prophecy. How every time the Jews gathered for Passover, they, by tradition, were doing something, were engaging in something that looks forward to the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And so that we, as his people, might appreciate and respect and honor him more deeply in that. When we come, brothers and sisters, I pray that our taking of the Lord's Supper would never be just a mere matter of tradition. Oh, here's a little piece of bread. Here's a little cup. Let's take this. You know, this, this is what we do when we gather for church. You know, we sing songs and we pray prayers and we hear sermons and, and we partake of these elements. No. When we as the people of God gather, there are matters of eternity, exchanges of eternity that are taking place. We have God himself attending the worship of his people he is our audience for when we give praise and glory and honor in song. He is our audience when we offer prayers in faith before him. And it is he who speaks through his word by his spirit to our hearts to equip us and to build us up in the faith. And it is he who attends the practice of the ordinances. When we baptize someone, we are identifying with Jesus Christ in his death and burial and resurrection as we make that public profession of faith. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We are celebrating the realities of the new covenant that we are in by his grace. Let us, brothers and sisters, remember that and celebrate the grace of that. It's not by what we have done. It's what Christ has done for us for the glory of his name. Amen? Let us pray. God, you are so very good. What a joy it is to us, Lord, to come to this text in Luke and to learn again, Lord, of how all the word points to you. Of how even, even under the old covenant, even in what was revealed in the Old Testament, there was always this aspect of a substitutionary sacrifice. There were always these elements of the Lamb of God who would take away sin. And how privileged we are, Lord, to live in a day and time where that has been done. Where you have come, you have completed your work of redemption. And you are at work even now drawing men and women, boys and girls, to yourself in salvation. How privileged we are, Lord, to be part of your family, to be among your children. Lord, direct our hearts. 
Help us, Lord, even when we partake of this again in the near future, to do so with hearts of deeper understanding and deeper respect and appreciation and love for Christ, our King. We pray all this in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.